Hello and welcome to Gotten Creation. Today we're talking with Professor John Bryan, who has a first class degree in natural sciences and a PhD in plant biochemistry from Cambridge. He's been professor of cell and molecular biology and head of biosciences at the University of Exeter. He has much more things under his sleeve and under his belt than that. I could actually go on for a while, but those are some big accomplishments that he has among other things. So John, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Um, the first big question that I would have is what got you into science? Well, that's, that's, that's very easy. When I was a kid, we lived in, in South London, but we were right on the edge of what is called London's Greenbelt, which is still there. It's a sort of ring of countryside around the, around the big smoke. And we lived within, we lived within 400 yards of, of being able to access the countryside. So at my elementary school, there's a whole group of us kids and a, and a lovely Christian teacher who were really interested in nature study, birds, butterflies, newts, anything you name. Uh, and so I just grew up with a love of nature. And then at high school, that turned into really a love of biological science. Uh, and as I said to a friend, it was a real revelation to me in my mid-teens to discover actually you could have a job as a biological scientist. Uh, and that really thrilled me. And, and from the age of about 15 onwards, I knew I wanted to be a professional scientist. And um, the assistant pastor at the church our family attended was very thrilled by that because he said, we need more scientists who are Christians. And so that kind of confirmed a calling. And I pursued that calling. And although my interest in, in science started with the environment, with nature, at Cambridge, my professional interest turned to the cellular molecules, DNA and stuff. But I still love the outdoors. Absolutely. Yeah, I see you. You love the outdoors and bird watching? Absolutely. Um, I'm actually curious as to if you could sell me on bird watching, because I know it is just the flight of birds is such a beautiful and intricate thing. I'm curious as to why. Do you still bird watch? I still bird watch. And in fact, we live uh, on the, now on the very edge of one of the European Union's top areas for wetland birds top 10 areas for wetland birds. But I won't try to sell um, it to you. I'd have to take you out and show you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So going back to just biology, what was what was your first degree? What was your first um, major? So, yeah, it doesn't quite work in the same way uh, in England as in the States. So I did a degree in natural sciences, which is a fairly flexible degree and allows you to specialize in different areas. And so I specialized in in biochemistry uh, and in plant sciences, with also quite a strong interest in genetics. So what was your main focus at the cellular level in DNA? What, what has been your biggest study? Well, I guess my biggest study, my, my, in, in my research over the years, I've been very interested in the way that organisms control their growth, uh, and growth requires the manufacture of new cells. And the manufacture of a new cell requires the cell to copy its genome, to copy its DNA before the cell divides into two. And I, my PhD started with that when a cell is dormant and then moves out into uh, active growth. And I 
was working on plants for uh, strongly ethical reasons. I'll tell you about that in a moment. It was a question of, of how does it start to copy its DNA? How does it start to copy its genome? And that has been really the major focus of my research over many years, uh, going right down to the level of, of how actually does the process switch on? How does a cell decide, now is the time to copy my DNA because a bit later I'm going to divide? And that's been very thrilling, quite awesome, in fact. Could you go into a bit of just the tremendous amount of perfection and detail it takes for for cells to divide and for the DNA to communicate with the cells and how that works? Oh man, <laughs> how long have you got? <laughs> well, firstly, let's think let's think about the division process. It's it's very important in in any organism that cell, cells only divide when they are supposed to, uh, and if that goes wrong, for example, in in animals, you would get cancer. Uh, and an integral part of that is some hours before actually dividing, they have to copy their genome, uh, uh, copy their DNA. And that, again, is, if you like, a molecular decision the cell has to make. It has to be the right time uh, and everything has to be correct. And when we first went into this, when you know I was looking after my first graduate students, we had a very simplistic idea. But now it turns out that after several years of research, the cell is very, very careful about deciding whether to copy its DNA. Uh, and sometimes I say that um, there are more fail-safe mechanisms, more more stages to go through to check they're okay than the president of the United States has before using the nuclear codes. It really is. It's a very, very well-orchestrated, well-controlled process. It takes about seven layers of regulation. And, and my atheist colleague and I, who led the research team on this, we are equally in awe of this process. It is absolutely beautiful. There's no other way to describe it. But still, we do not know what causes the first level of control to be switched on. What actually makes it do that? So there's still a, still lots of answers that need, need to be found out. Even though I've retired from the science now, I can still look at it and say, this is awesome. What has, since you have been pursuing um, this, have, since you first started school, what have, have been the biggest discoveries in your area of research, in the area of DNA and cells? Well, when I was at when I was at elementary school and I was very very young, um, it was when Watson and Crick uh, discovered the structure uh -huh. of DNA, and of course that opened up all sorts of research lines, which are still coming to fruition now. But I would say that when I was an undergraduate and postgraduate, the the genetic code was actually being deciphered. And much of that was actually happening in Cambridge, where we were. And so it was quite thrilling to see that. And then step by step, over subsequent years, we have discovered all the subtle little nuances that are when that are involved in the in the in the decoding of the code to turn it into something active in the cell. So that that is still happening. And then I would say the most recent it's not exactly discovery but it's a set of techniques we now we now can we can now sequence a genome that means we can determine the structure of an individual's uh, genetic set very fast and very accurately and that has thrown up all sorts of interesting highlights about evolution and about human health right across the board from as i say from understanding the basics of evolution going right across to understanding genetic diseases and being able to treat them
Right. So I guess we could transition right into bioethics because you're very you've been very deep in that process of yeah um, yeah one of the national advisors to universities on this so yes that's yeah. right <laughs> so could you go into a bit about bioethics and some of the things that you've taught on and your biggest areas just bioethics well, in general yeah well interestingly you know uh, uh, as soon as genetic uh, modification techniques were invented, they became a very, very useful research tool. And so we uh, were able to move genes between cells and see what happens at the research level. And of course, there are wider implications for moving genes between different types of cell. And and they throw up all sorts of interesting questions like, is it right ever to change the genetic makeup of a future human being, for example, in a designer baby scenario. And so a, a social scientist friend of mine who was uh, also a Christian, and I decided that our undergraduates needed to think about these issues because they have they have very broad implications in society. And so we started a course for our in our undergraduate program, which was were very, very popular. But I mean, the range of questions we can ask is, is absolutely huge. I've just mentioned one of them, you know, is genetic modification of humans right? What about crops? Is that okay? What about the use of genetic modification in making drugs? Is that okay? So we can explore those issues. But there's also issues such as uh, cloning. Is it okay to, to clone organisms? What about humans again? Is it all right to use human stem cells in medicine? So the, the, the range of issues is, is quite huge. I'd recommend my my recent book if you want to have a <laughs> oh, absolutely. What are the classes? It isn't um, telling them what's right or wrong. What are the classes? Is just is it just raising those questions? Well, it's raising the questions, but we also at the beginning we 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 teach them about the different ways of thinking about what is right and what is wrong, and so we 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 talk about virtue and inevitably. Christian virtues are mentioned, and, and that is quite legitimate because it's an academic study. And so we talk about Christian virtues. We talk about ethical decision making that is is what is best for most of the people most of the time. You know, that's that's a politician's ethics. We talk about are there absolutes of right and wrong. So we do talk about different ways that people make decisions about right and wrong, and we encourage the class to think about how they use those tools when they're making ethical decisions, and we throw some social decision-making at them. So you know, a, the simple one is obeying the speed limit, for example. But we throw lots of, I would say, worked examples at the class and get them to discuss them and, and try to get them to see what ethical tools they are using. Are they, are they operating on rules? Or are they operating on what's best for the most? Or are they operating on virtue? And uh, different students will come up with different answers. And so it is in, so we, we don't tell them what is right and wrong in a given situation, but we ask them to work out what they think is right and wrong. Um, we do sometimes present our own views, but we emphasize that this is what we have worked out for ourselves based on our ethical framework. And I think that's okay. The students think that's okay. We're not, we're not trying to make them, we're not trying to make them religious or uh, take a particular ethical view. To take it back, I'm very interested in the cell as a city and how everything's oh, man. How the cell yeah. makes up the body. And I know you're interested in, in the interconnectedness of, of things and um, systems biology. And if you could go into that. Well, I, I won't. I, I'll, I'll go back one step 
uh, one step further back that that the way the genetic code works right. i mean if we thought if if we designed that uh, ourselves we would say that it was the work of an absolute genius there's no other way of describing it the the, the way that the the code works and then the code is protected uh, and the code is then passed on to the next generation the mechanisms are blindingly simple and yet awesomely complex at the same time so that's 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 the code but the code has to do things the code has to actually instruct cells uh, and instruct cells to make stuff and the stuff that the, the code mostly instructs the stuff is called protein and and we've got about i wouldn't say like to say how many proteins we've got maybe twenty thousand different proteins uh, and, and the chances of a uh, protein self-assembling in w- with its building blocks in the right order, the, the chances are infinitesimally small. You could not possibly base life on a chance assembly of a protein with its building blocks in the right order. And that's where the code comes in. The code directs the protein to be built. But how those two how those two came together back in the early cell, we have no idea. Proteins are absolutely great at doing their job. DNA is absolutely great at doing the, the, its job. But there is no, if you like, essential biochemical reason why there should be a linkage between co- the, the code in DNA and, and the resulting proteins. It just doesn't make sense. How on earth did these two types of molecule ever come to be self, uh, to be interdependent on each other? It's quite totally... It's totally astounding that this happened. And, and although I don't subscribe to the uh, the intelligent design movement uh, being quite okay about evolution, I think most most honest people looking at the way the code works would say, this looks like a designed process because there's no way of thinking about how did that occur by random interaction. It just doesn't make sense. And then we've got... The problem of how did we assemble a cell around these things that are going on? How was a cell first assembled? Because the cell requires DNA, and yet DNA now requires a cell in which to work. So we've got a circle we can't break into. So way back, way back at the beginning of life, there are elements there which are just just amazing and and which are totally puzzling to us as we try to think about the mechanisms whereby uh, they came into being it's very very difficult and and so we even have agnostic scientists saying the the appearance of design is is overwhelming in in the in the way that a cell and the genetic code works that's interesting and then, of course, the cell, the cell is a totally integrated entity, regulating its activity, switching genes on and off, proteins active or inactive, and so on. And so you've, you've then got, you've got an entity which is, is kind of self-regulating, but also has to regulate itself in, in a body in relation to its neighbors to make an organ, for example, make a liver or a brain. How does that process work? Uh, <laughs> well, in in both in both plant and animals embryos, we what we begin to see, if you like, gradients set up. Those gradients may be partly uh, determined by gravity, but they're also determined by position within the the body of the parent plant or animal. They then the gradients then respond to cues from the parent body, uh, and so we we get. 
we get gradient set up. So, so a cell at one end of the gradient might go in one direction, and a cell at the other end of the gradient might go in the other direction. So, a, a very simple example would be that in a plant embryo, we can see the early root cells at one at one end of the gradient, and the early shoot cells at the other end of the gradient. And then, if we like, in in uh, mammals, we see very early the setting up of an axis, which turns into the the top and bottom, uh, and very very early on at about two weeks, we begin to see where the spinal cord will form to make the vertical axis in a, in a mammal, for example. So, so this formation of, of gradients, and that turns into chemical gradients, you know, that if there was secretion of a hormone, it might be more present at one end than the other, and so on. You can, you can see the, pic, the general picture without going into too much nitty-gritty detail. So cells respond to each other in a number of ways, but one of which is their position with respect to each other. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. You do have a um, degree in plant biochemistry, so yeah, I wouldn't want to not talk about that. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I wanted to work on plants because, well, firstly, they, they shape our environment. That, you know, people, all, all the lovely, cozy um, natural history programs focus on the animals, but the, the plant, uh, plants and rocks and weather really shape our environment uh, and the animals are secondary shapers of the environment so that's one thing but the the other main thing is that plants will feed the world they are the basis of the food chain um I, i'll be quite dramatic but with without plants we would not be here because the process of photosynthesis is so important in uh, trapping the energy from the sun and so i chose to work on plants and and i chose to work with a very charismatic younger PhD advisor and together we worked out that we wanted to do this study of of what happened how does a, how does a plant cell decide to leave dormancy and start being active in growth and that's how I first got started on the DNA side of stuff was actually PhD but my undergraduate program had pushed me strongly in that direction as well okay um, so I am interested in photosynthesis and how how does that process in a rough detail work and also because it must be pretty complex or else we would have some better technology to capture sunlight and we would yeah people are trying to work on artificial photosynthesis but essentially the and and this evolved suddenly Maybe, maybe two billion years ago, quite extraordinary that photosynthesis was, was it, I always say was invented, but we'll say it evolved. First, I said that changed the planet because it provided oxygen. The, the byproduct of photosynthesis is oxygen. And that immediately made possible the presence of, of really complicated organisms whose biochemistry needs oxygen. Uh, and that's almost everything now that lives apart from a lot of microbes. And so plants, animals, whatever, we are oxygen breathing organisms. And the arrival of photosynthesis on the planet was, was one of the things that triggered that. But it, it's quite astonishing that, that plant cells have got the ability to, to, to grab the energy from sunshine uh, and to use that to, to generate energy-providing molecules. So all our cells have energy-providing molecules, uh, and, and in plants, they are generated using the energy from sunshine in two separate reactions uh, which are linked together. 
and and the the net result of that is there's energy uh, and that energy is used to to grab carbon dioxide uh, and turn it into plant material and that plant material is what we are utterly dependent on on the planet without our plants uh, there would be no basic metabolism at all for us nothing at all but as I, uh, I'm not quite sure whether I was that was enough detail for you. But the, the energy trapping mechanisms are well. I, I can just describe them as beautiful. And again, it's like my my DNA replication, like my copying of the genome. That if we sort of sit, sit and look at them, we would say that man is just totally awesome. The way that the the subdivisions of the photosynthetic apparatus interact with each other to turn sunlight energy into chemical energy. It's just astonishing. Thank you. As a final topic, if you could, if you could describe, you have a rainbow analogy. I do have a rainbow analogy, yes. <laughs> if, yeah, if um, you could tell my audience that. Yeah, my, my rainbow analogy actually refers to what we might call knowledge or, or, or truth. And, and it, it's this important this very important understanding that science and religious faith actually embarked on the same quest. We're both embarked on searching for truth and knowledge. And if we, if we think of the overall picture of truth and knowledge as like, as like white light, the light that, you know, that we are sitting in, or I'm sitting in right now. It's probably, is it, is it dark with you yet? <laughs> yeah, it's 4, 4.30. Yeah. yeah. So, but we can split that white light up into into its individual components, and and I like to think that across the spectrum, you know, we've got at one end we've got the really hardcore mathematics, the sorts of that describes the physical laws that govern the way the universe works, and at the other end of the spectrum we have got religious truths, uh, and and we can't use the we can't use the. The, the methods of mathematics and physics to investigate whether or not there is God. But nevertheless, God has provided enough evidence for his existence to provide us with some light. And that's at well, the other end of the rainbow. And if we leave one of those lights out of and try to reassemble white light, we won't. We'll have a distorted view. But we'll all have, have also have a distorted view if we just look like just through the red or through the blue or through the green. We need the lot. And so th there's an assembly then of, of the different sorts of truth, which are sought in different ways, which are, are researched in different ways that come together to build our overall understanding of, of truth and knowledge. And, and it's incomplete without a religious. It's, that's, that's incomplete if, if we leave religion yeah. out of it. Yeah, when I first heard that, I really loved it just because just I really think that science complements faith and shows how God reveals you can see there's a creator and just the complexity um, of nature and this that science just complements our faith. I think my, what I might do, Tyler, is that. My friend Graham Swinnard, who's the astronomer, and, and I have, have just uh, finished a book, which we're trying to get published at the moment, which is called From the Big Bang to Biology, Where is God? But the last chapter is Why Do We Believe? And as we say, you know, that firstly, science can't provide all the answers. And secondly, there's strong evidence for design in the way the universe works and the way biology works. But is that enough to make us believe? And so we talk about evidence for God, God's fingerprints in the world. We talk a little bit about Jesus as well.
and and that that's the last chapter having been quite sciencey up till that point <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll be looking out for that well it, with my with my colleague's permission i might i might send you a copy of, of chapter nine to see what you make of it <laughs> okay I can, yeah I, I so, can, that would be phenomenal i, I can send you one by email <laughs> Okay, that's great. I've been trying um, to persuade my, my astronomer friend to participate in the in these discussions, and 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 now we've had them. I feel quite reassured that I can encourage him to do that, because <laughs> you see, you ask some very interesting questions. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's that's going to be the last of it for this episode. Thanks so much, Professor, for coming on. Thank you.